everybody, it's Bob Lament here. I'm with Frank Nora. Then do you use the Edward anymore? Because uh, yeah, for for the show, I use Frank Edward Nora. Yeah, as well, opposed with, to my in my real life, I'm just Frank Nora. You're just Frank Nora. Okay, Frank Edward Nora is here yes. with me, and he is the uh, the host, the owner, the provocateur of the Overnightscape, maybe. Uh, which some of you may or may not know at this point, we'll find out. But uh, we're going to talk about pre-podcasting or what I'm calling prior casting um, today. And um, we're going to get his thoughts on, on some things about what happened before audio on the internet was really a thing. So can you tell me, uh, Frank, when did you start producing audio for the internet? So audio for the internet, I started producing specifically in March of 2000 because of a website called mp3.com, which I think was relatively new back then. Um, I had great interest in, in doing audio prior to that, but um, it was prohibitively uh, expensive to uh, host uh, large files on the internet at that time on your website. So mp3.com um, offered to host, I think up to 10 mp3 files for you I think this was primarily meant for musicians, but they would host any kind of audio. So I felt that I could uh, record shows. I had a lot of stuff recorded from my previous, you know, on cassette tapes from my previous time uh, creating audio content. And this then was a moment where I could put it online for people to listen to online. And I felt even though there's a very limited amount I could put on at any time, I could rotate it. And um, it, it was the first time I felt that technically speaking, I could uh, get files. And of course, M you know, MP3 was fairly new then as well as, as a great compression and relatively open format and uh, not real audio, which was a very difficult format. But that was the moment when I went, when I went on and I just went from there. Yeah, you mentioned real audio. The first audio on the internet I put out was real audio, which is a big pain in the neck. But I'll, I'm uh, glad I got started <laughs> because real audio was uh, just a, a, a thorn in everyone's side until it finally, finally died. And even though you still find some sites that have real audio files. I, I could probably say I'm a real audio expert from that time period because uh, a lot of people weren't using it. But uh, anyway, but let me let me go back a little bit. Um, so you mentioned you did things on cassette, right? So this goes even back further before the internet, but what, what was your, you know, imp, you know, impetus to put things on cassette even? So um, my father had a tape recorder when I, so in 1969, when I was two years old, he actually recorded a, a, an interview with me, which is the, so I actually have audio from the sixties, which is very cool. And uh, my brother and sister and I would uh, take that tape recorder. And back then in the seventies, in kids would just, a lot of people did this. They would do like audio shows, on the cassette tapes, then tape over them, and then tape over them, imitating uh, TV shows and cartoons and news reports. And I uh, got my own tape recorder in uh, 77 at my 10th birthday. And uh, I remember even before I got it, planning out the shows I was going to do. I had a book about animals. I was going to do a, a cassette show about animals. Um, something about being able to put something on, on tape, on audio, and then play it back and hear yourself talking was just something I was hugely interested in. I think it's something um, that... Uh, I wasn't aware of um, the pure audio format uh, until I was at the supermarket with my mother, probably sometime late 70s, early 80s, and they had these radio reruns on cassette in the supermarket, which were the old time radio shows. So I got a few with uh, Jack Benny, W.C. Fields, and Abbott and Costello, 
And hearing those, there was something about that. I'm like, wow, you can do this kind of, you, audio doesn't just have to be like the radio where you're, they're playing music and a DJ giving the, the time and weather. You can have a variety of content and it's so different than, than video. It's, there's something very, uh, the experience of listening to audio especially a, a variety of, of, of formats is, is very different. It's very much more personal, it's much more warm, and it's, it's a much more, um, almost a weird meditative kind of experience to um, listen to an audio show. And I think I got these indications uh, early on. And then I think the early, some of the early radio shows I listened to, like Rush Limbaugh at the time, was started doing monologues. And um, I didn't even know really what the monologue format was. And uh, I, I really responded to that. Uh, the, the, the radio shows where they were more talking and it was just one person talking. So all of this kind of fed into, um, I just, every time I encountered this type of uh, media, this kind of entertainment, it, 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 uh, it, it made me feel something different. And I always uh, I noted that. So I think the audio medium, which had kind of floundered since the death of radio in the late forties, I guess, um, was hard to find, but the little bits and pieces I found really uh, excited me. So you you were not a, uh, a believer in the Fred Allen quote, radio is a treadmill to oblivion then? Well, you know, there, there, there was a problem with the ephemeral nature of radio. A lot of times, um, you know, Fred Allen, unfortunately, he's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, whereas Jack yeah. Henning has, has persisted, Fred Allen did kind of fall into uh, an utter obscurity uh, the only remnant of his show, of course, is the Looney Tune character, uh, Foghorn Leghorn. That's a whole other story. Um, but Gene Shepard as well, who is sort of my inspiration for my show, a monologist on, uh, did a monologue show in, in New York radio. He quit in 77 because he said um, he worked so hard on creating these shows and they're broadcast and anyone that hears it, hears it, and then it's lost. I don't know if he knew the extent to which his fans were recording it just on their home recording equipment and sharing those, those recordings. But in general, he felt he was wasting his time and energy with something that would be completely lost. And I think that's probably was Fred Allen's thought too. You work so hard on it and it's kind of lost. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, you know, my, um, just to interject, my Gene Shepard uh, entry point, obviously is Christmas story, which is kind of his biggest uh, success, uh, which, took me down the rabbit hole a little bit uh, to find your uh, work uh, in a way um, through all this. So it's kind of interesting how all these things interconnect um, as you go through there. What, um, when you started putting these things onto the internet, what was uh, your goal? You talked about, you know, you had 10 slots basically at mp3.com that you could put things on, you're going to rotate them and so forth, but to, to what end was the purpose? Just just to do it, or was, were you looking at other goals? I felt like I there, there was a, a, an, a, a an entertainment medium that really was not being explored. I called my site was called bluffcosm.com, and I called these bluff tunes, which were short audio pieces that were not music but could be listened to uh, over and over again. I remember uh, pretty much uh, listening to Howard Stern all through the eighties uh, and into the nineties, and uh, he had so many of those audio clips that, that Fred Norris would play. Um, and I always thought just these, not music, but are there non-music things that you'd like to listen to over and over again? So the bluff tunes were meant to be short, uh, perhaps the length of a song, 
partially because of the technological limitations at the time. I couldn't put a five hour show up on mp3.com. I think there was a limit of maybe 10 or 20 minutes per mp3. So the idea was to create sort of a dense uh, a kind of entertainment with comedy bits, weird audio. Um, um, sometimes it was scripted, sometimes it was improv, and sometimes it was just walking around New York City and hearing weird people talk. So short audio clips at that time was my uh, original focus because of the limitation. Yeah, no, and that, I was wondering, because you said bluff, uh, bluff tunes, there was a thing back, uh, it was probably prior to that time period, but called Plimp Tunes by a filmmaker. I don't know if you know Bill Plimpton, uh, yeah, Plimp Tunes. I don't know if I that. I, I ran into him a few times. I think I called oh, okay. him for an internship when I was in film school. I oh, think, really? Yeah. Well, that's that's. I, I talked to him on the phone actually, and then I saw him actually a couple years ago at the Comic Con, New, the New York Comic Con. But in New York. Oh wow! How him. interesting. I don't know that even if anybody will remember Plimp Tunes, but uh, <laughs> oh I've yeah, seen, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. So yeah, they were kind um, of like little audio cartoons in a way. Um, and and you've yeah exactly that's what they were they were silly little things um so you already talked a little bit about the inspirations that kind of brought you that with the with fred norris's clips and so forth was there any and obviously when you were young your your father you said uh, recorded you and you have uh, that recording um were there any other influences that maybe pushed you in a direction to to do this yeah i think it was that um uh the awareness of uh, old time radio of, of which I had very little, but I listened to them over and over again. I also, with my tape recorder in the seventies would record TV shows and then listen to them afterwards. So I had the little rascals and there was a TV show called Quark, uh, a short lived uh, science fiction uh, sitcom. And I think I noticed at the time um, re-listening to things in audio. Again, it was, it was a different kind of experience. Um, and then, of course, I would say that Howard Stern is an enormous influence. Uh, my father heard about him. He knew someone from Washington, D.C. who turned him on to Howard Stern even before Stern came to uh, New York, I believe, in 84. So the moment he came, I would come home from school. He was on in the afternoon and just lay in my bed and listen to Howard Stern. And it really was um, a, a kind of a revelation in audio because Stern, he said, one thing that Howard Stern said that always stuck with me, he's like, why aren't these people on the radio talking about what's going on? Why don't they talk about their own experience? He said he listened to a news broadcast, one of those news channels, and he heard a door open and everyone paused, but no one would dare say what was going on. And he said, I want to always say who was at the door, what was going on? And even in those early days, he, it was a, an absolute uh, uh, sort of a, a revolution in radio that you could, you could talk about what's going on, your experiences, and just kind of be yourself. You don't have to be this stuffy kind of, hello there for the Chase and Sanborn hour, you know, like this formality, which seemed to permeate radio, um, where, whereas it, it had so much of more of a potential. So I, I really saw that with uh, with Howard Stern. That, that, that's really interesting. Uh, just a quick aside. So uh, when I was younger, uh, WLS in Chicago, I don't, I didn't come from Chicago. I live very far downstate in Illinois, uh, didn't live, live in Chicago, and we could get WLS when I was a kid. And at that time period in the 80s, um, there were, uh, Steve and Gary were on WLS, if people remember that. And I used to listen to Steve and Gary in the afternoon, which was kind of an irreverent uh, Howard Stern type show. Uh, Gary Meyer, who uh, 
1979 had everybody come to Wrigley Field and, and burn their disco records. Disco Demolition, uh, yes. The, the disco I played Demolition, that on yeah. my show a number of times. <laughs> so that that was uh, on my end. That was kind of the, the equivalent there. But but you mentioned the interesting thing you mentioned is is this idea. And I've always thought this about uh, e- even uh, today uh, with digital audio is this idea of not being overly polished, uh, this idea of, of going with the flow and reacting, not creating a, a whole environment for people to be uh, fooled by, but to react in reality. And so I think a lot of these um, early uh, things that we're, we're you know, talking about here have to do with the fact that it's not stuffy or corporate or planned as much as uh, things were in the past. Uh, you know, Fred Allen, perhaps, if we go that far back even, but they are spontaneous. Um, they're real. Things happen. Mistakes yeah. happen. And if you think Does about that, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So when, so when any kind of human creativity, right? A lot of times with radio shows, people will come up with ideas, write them down, write scripts, edit scripts, hire actors to say those things. But it's all coming from somewhere, right? There's, there's a certain moment which we don't really understand. Their ideas form in your mind and you release them in some way on writing or talking. So the idea is to capture that at its source. So that's the idea that when you're talking, uh, you're, and you're just talking off the top of your head, you're capturing that stream wherever it's coming from directly, as opposed to through these levels of filtration. Um, and that I think is the most important thing. But of course, I don't just, I also feel like I'm putting on a show and I want to add a bit of showmanship to it as well. So it's not just talking as I would talk to another person. It's this weird intersection between formality and, and, and then sort of the off the cuff aspect um, where I find where the two intersect there's this sort of magical place where you can just talk off the top of your head and yet it's coming across as a formal performance as well. Which, you know, and I, and we actually have it recorded, but I don't know, uh, Frank, a little bit of background. Frank and I have actually interacted at least on email for over 20 years now, very sporadically, very sporadically. So it's not like we're best buddies or anything like that, um, but we have known of each other uh, in ways and then listen to each other's um, uh, creative projects. And even as, as I was doing it, I was thinking this, I said, Frank and I were just doing a little talking about some things beforehand. And then I said, okay, now I'm going to record Frank. And there was a change in my tone. There's a change in my voice. There's a change in my energy uh, at that moment where you're going to come into this audio versus the two minutes even prior when Frank and I were having a conversation. And it's interesting because I'm still being myself, but I'm being myself uh, a little more amped up than I would normally be, maybe. A little more entertained, a little more variant in my voice, um, rather than just being my usual kind of flat, uh, dull self. But it is interesting that, but this happens and it happens almost automatically, whether it's intentional or not. And um, this leads me to another thought that I was having while you were talking there, which is that um, 
you know, people feel that public speaking is one of the most difficult things that they'll, that they can do. In fact, they'd rather die than public speak. You've heard that statistic, yeah. right? I can tell you, it's interesting. And I, I was wanting to see what your uh, feelings are on this. Having done this um, kind of stream of consciousness thing uh, on the internet, um, public speaking to me is almost inconsequential now. Whereas I actually, uh, and still am for the most part, I don't want to go public speaking unless I have to, but um Prior to that, I'm, I'm actually a very shy and introverted person, um, but this, uh, this practice of doing this in a way has made it so that, that getting up to do whatever is, is really not, I mean, there's nerves in, the, in a sense of being in front of the people, but there's not nerves in the sense of, am I going to be able to speak? I wonder if, if you've had that or if you've even had any uh, encounters since that have helped you since you've been doing this for so long? Yeah, I mean, I do find that um, doing the monologue, which uh, to me is a completely non-intuitive of, of, of form of, of creativity, right? Just talking essentially um, by yourself to an audience um, does not come naturally. So I think that once you build those tools of um, uh, being able to uh, form thoughts and speak them, and, uh, and get the rhythm and the flow, it does help with the little public speaking that I've done. I think, I think it does help with that. I mean, I do find myself doing kind of my show voice when I'm at meetings at work, when I have to sort of present something. Um, but I feel like I, it's, it's in the, uh, not trying to be overblown, but it just to convey information and things to, uh, I sort of feel subconsciously, I suppose that, you know, it's, it aids in the communication. The way I'm talking right now, for example, maybe, Again, like you're saying, it's sort of subconsciously, uh, the tone of my voice is a little different, the, the uh, rising and falling of the pitch, whatever it is. Um, it, it, but I think it does achieve something, which is that I know some people could say, oh, is it an audio diary where you're just talking about what you did that day? And no, I'm meaning to put on a show. It's meant to be a form of entertainment. It's not meant to be an audio diary. Um, but I think it's something that comes over time. And I know that I've been very influenced by another form of monologue artists, which is stand-up comedians. Very strong in, uh, influence from them as well. Um, have, you tried to, have you tried to do stand-up? I'm just curious. I've done it once or twice, but it's not. I feel like what I'm able to do is what the stand-up does, but I, have, I can talk about different things every day. A stand-up comedian has to talk about the same things and get laughs. Mm -hmm. So I'd have really no interest in that. That's interesting, though, because yeah. uh, it, it is that there is a, a correlation, I believe, there. The hard part, uh, I'm with you. The hard part is repeating yourself uh, for the punchline, because the the punchline kind of has to fall almost the same way each time in order to be funny. Uh, and if you don't like doing that, then it kind of ruins it a little bit because you you don't want to just say the same thing. You know, I'll buy that for a dollar or or whatever your catchphrase is uh, every time, because it, it's you know a little bit mind-numbing, really. But, uh... but what comedians do, stand-up comedians, what they're able to do, they get up in front of a, a crowd and they just start talking about stuff, like things in their life, any random topic. And there's really very few other forms of formal media that can do that, right? Everything has a topic, everything has a structure, but a stand-up comedian, hey, you know, I was, you know, I was in an elevator the other day and did you ever notice these buttons and like, 
that is exactly the type of content and the, the range of content I want to address. So why not do that, but just without the need for constant uh, punchlines and laughs? I think, again, it's kind of, and that's what Gene Shepard was doing a lot on the radio, a monologue where he's just talking about all sorts of stuff. So I think that in both cases, it's, it's sort of a somewhat unexplored medium. That's what I find exciting about a lot of, about audio. There's a lot of these uh, aspects of types of performances you can have, types of content that have not been very well explored in the past. Yeah, interesting. It, it was funny you mentioned the elevator because uh, Seinfeld is on Netflix now. And uh, my son and I are watching it together. He was not alive uh, when it was on originally. And uh, he, uh, my kids both say over time, because Seinfeld's been in reruns for so long, that there are certain vo vocal inflections that I will have that are similar to Seinfeld in real life. And the problem is they keep telling me the problem is, uh, dad, when you try to do Seinfeld, you sound nothing like him. But when you're sitting there talking, you sound exactly like him. So I'm not going to do exact. But then uh, just last night, we had uh, watched an episode or something. And, uh, and I started doing a riff on uh, he was saying how my son was like, we were supposed to go to the courthouse for something for him for uh, uh, some paperwork or something. And he's like, yeah, I like to go to the courthouse. And then so I went into a riff on a Seinfeld riff, you know, because he said, because he likes courthouse elevators. And I said, yeah, you know, courthouse <laughs> elevators, they're the best elevators. That's a stand. That's a lead into a standup. Yeah, they're the best because all the buttons work, all the lights turn on. It'll actually stop on every floor. And then that's the, that's the Seinfeld. But again, I don't sound like Seinfeld because apparently I can't without just being uh, natural. But uh, it launches into a whole Seinfeld bit, which is what you're talking about with uh, stand-up comedians is where you can take anything like courthouse elevators yeah. and make it a bit. This is funny. But anyway, I, that was a bit of an aside. Sorry. <laughs> but um, so let's... Uh, the idea behind this is the the fact that there was audio on the internet prior to podcasting. And so what, could you give us just a rundown of projects and things you had a little bit there with Bluff Cosm and so forth, of projects <clears throat> and things that you've done pre-2004, so before the invention of podcasting um, that you've created uh, for the internet? Yeah, I think that my, the whole the story of all this is sort of the story of the, the technology behind it. So when, as a kid, I had the tape recorder with the cassette tapes, which I had a limited number of cassette tapes. Sometimes you recorded over them. Um, then when I went to college in the mid 80s, I, I remember really being interested in college radio. That would be my opportunity to get a radio show because before that in high school, there wasn't a, like a high school radio station. But I knew in college, anyone that really wanted to could get a radio show. So I went up going to Drew University in Madison, New Jersey and uh, getting a radio show in 86. And that was a, a great experience. It was a comedy radio show. We went a little too far. We got kicked off the air. Um, but this is actually a very interesting moment when they kicked us off the air for being too wild. Um, we wanted to continue the show. And so this is a theme. What, what, media, what media and what technologies can you control as opposed to something that's too expensive? Like, I can't have my own, like, radio FM radio station because it would cost so too much money uh, but we decided to continue it as a magazine printed on a, a photocopied little magazine form of our radio show because those were the early days where you could 
start to get cheap copies at copy shops. So the idea is that that technology of for media was in our control, right? We could create a magazine and distribute it to the students, whereas they weren't letting us on the air. And this, I think, is a story about what technologies are in the hands of the regular people. Um, around that same time, I was publishing my own mini comics because that was something that I could take control of and um, publishing my, my own works. And that is, uh, very, that's very much connected to audio because audio, uh, the ability to, uh, to record and store and, and distribute audio uh, was there was no way to do it in the 80s, right? You, you had essentially, you had cassette tapes and that was it. You could record, and I did record cassette tapes, make some copies and nail them to people, but it was a very, very um, laborious and inefficient process. So when the 90s came, and I started my website actually in uh, 95, which was a very early website. Um, at that time, this, the hosting, I mean, uh, was very, very limited. I think I don't know, like 10 megabytes maybe, or five megabytes was, was the account. It was at some small company in Princeton, New Jersey. I think I had to mail them floppy disks to, uh, for the site originally. And then the guy told me, have you heard of something called FTP? I'm like, no, well, you can FTP your files in. So this was a point, and again, so uh, I don't even think I was uh, digitizing audio on the computer at that point. Because um, think about the size of hard drives back then. My first hard drive in, in 89 was 20 megabytes, right? Now, the last like minute of audio we've been recording is like 20 megabytes. You know, it's like, maybe not that much, but you know, like 20 minutes is like 20 megabytes. Um, there was just no capacity to, if you know, you, if you were to record audio, it would take up your entire hard drive for like 10 minutes. And uh, so that was the situation. And I kind of, I did do uh, a show in 1991 on cassette called Train Crap and Blood which uh, was very much like a podcast. We recorded it in my friend's basement and it was a bunch of guys and we did all these comedy bits. And then I made a few copies and gave it to a few people, but there was no way to get it out there. But that was actually, if you think about it, 91 is what, 13 years before podcasting. So it's not that long before. And I had the desire to do this and, and, and it was just cassette tapes, cassette tapes, cassette tapes. And um, as the nineties wore on, I had my website and it was all text, right? It was a, an easy, text was the format that we could easily afford, like hundreds of pages of documents, very little storage space. And you, people had the modems that were very slow back then. And if they needed to download something that was like 15K, oh, it would only take a, like half an hour or something, you know, at some point. Um, so a lot of this is dictated by uh, the technology of the time. And just because of its nature, audio is very, requires a lot of data and, uh, that didn't start to change until the later 90s when hard drives were getting bigger, um, modems were getting faster. I mean, we went, I mean, I remember I got web TV at one point that had, I think, a 28.8 modem. I'm like, that was, or maybe it was 56K. That's like so, so fast. And um, so I think that, so the bottom line is uh, my love of the audio medium was really held back digitally because of there were no tools available. There were no tools available. There, there was no computers that could do it. And slowly, slowly, the computer's getting faster. Every time you got a new computer every few years, it may have more capacity to do this. Um, the internet, of course, was not in existence yet. I know people you know, don't realize at some point, I mean, the earliest uh, internet, World Wide Web was around 94. I got on a 94 via AOL. And again, it was 
the, I don't remember any audio sites back then. It was, it was uh, not something you could do. If you had a picture of, of a person, it would take like two minutes to load in. So it was, it was all that. I always was sort of anticipating when this would be possible. And um, so by the, around uh, 2000, um, it was, uh, that's where the dawning of it was. And I remember even in the early days of my, sh uh, of um, Bluff Cosm, I could only, even my web account, I think had a hundred megabyte limit. So I had to take files off. Once I went off mp3.com and was hosting the mp3 files myself, I would add a new one. I have to take some out even in those early days because the web hosting, which would cost, you know, whatever, $50 a month, $20 a month, almost no storage capacity. And that all changed that there was a big moment. If I recall correctly, around 2003, where all of the web hosts started to like vastly increase the amount of uh, storage your account would have going from hundred megabytes to 500 megabytes or a gigabyte. And that really opened it up. And that was right before podcasting started. So I think that, um, you know, it was uh, these, these, these uh, moments in technology as it intersects with our audio culture. Um, people may not remember that, but it was extremely restrictive back then. So, so tell me some more about your show. So I know you did the Bluff uh, tunes for, for Bluff Cosm. What, uh, what, what was the next show after that one? I mean, these are the, what I'm talking about is ongoing things that you did yeah. for more than like, you know, kind of a one-off or something, but something that you did for several uh, episodes or, or installments. Yeah. So, I mean, it started off with those, the, the, the bluff tunes, which were shorter. Then I digitized some of my older material, those, those shows called Train Crap and Blood, for example, put those online. And then I continued that show and uh, we brought a tape recorder. It was a, it was a stereo Walkman with a cassette in it out in the field and we recorded shows of a bit longer at that point. So I was able to start putting more uh, longer audio on in uh, say like a 2000, uh, 2002, 2003. And then in 2003, I started uh, the show that I'm still doing, which is the Overnightscape, which was very influenced by Gene Shepard as a monologue show, just getting on and just doing a monologue, talking about stuff. And uh, even in those early days, I couldn't store all the shows on there. I had to delete episodes it wasn't, I forget exactly the moment when they increased the capacity. I think my web host back then was called One and One, like One Ampersand One was the name of the host. I hadn't heard about them in years, but yep. um, it was, uh, you know, that moment when you were able to have that increased capacity. And in fact, I, I had to reduce the quality of the audio. So I was recording it, I think as waves actually, like high resolution, but I had to compress it down to something like 36K or something. Uh, because of the limitations back then. And then eventually down the line, I, I released everything at a higher bit rate. Uh, I think that all sort of shows that um, in 2004, when podcasting started, that's really the summer of 2004 is around the time that these technologies really were maturing to the point that audio was um, much more uh, feasible technically. Um, so the struggles before that and then, of course, there's streaming, which is a whole other side, which I didn't get into very much. But in the story of pre-podcasting audio, there's a lot of streaming that happened. Right. Live365.com was a big yes. thing for streaming. Talk Shoe Radio was a bit a big thing for... That was at the cusp. I can't remember yeah. where that one was at. I was on Live365 for a while. Yeah. Yeah. It, funny you mentioned one and one. I used one and one until about three years ago. Really? So, yeah, the same. That's the first one that I got onto, and I felt kind of stuck for a while. And 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 I only changed probably three years ago, which is funny. But uh, 
Uh, I, I had no idea where you were a host of that. So it's, it's interesting finding that out today. Uh, that uh, <laughs> well, and we, today, were, we were probably on the same server for a while. We didn't even know it. <laughs> at some point, the web host uh, decided to have unlimited storage, right? So right. feeling that most people won't have too much on there, but I currently have something like 600 gigabytes on my account. And they did call me out on it, but I demonstrated it was all for the website. I'm not a file hosting site. It was all for the podcast and they let me keep it all. Oh, good. For, yeah, you're not, you're not just uh, like uh, hosting month, pirate I'm, files or something. No, no. And I, I had yeah. to really work with them, um, but it's been yeah. kind of amazing. But So how many, what would you, if you had to put that because we used to do a numbering system in there. What's your number now for the overnightscape? What's the number? Um, I'm at like in the 1800s now. Okay. And then I've I've done like another thousand shows under different names. And, you know, we have, we we have kind of like a a network going. We have uh, over 10,000 shows now in the network. Yeah, I'm I'm actually part of that network. Just for yes, you're in that network. You're listed. I'm in the, the I'm in the network. Yeah, yeah. not not as not eighteen hundred wise, but maybe I don't know hundred, so something like that, somewhere in that neighborhood, maybe less. You're in the book, actually. So this is yeah, in the book, yeah. <laughs> the Bob section. Well, mention the book. Go ahead and mention the book. What since so you this got is uh, the Ansa, a radio station inside a book. So, um, this is uh, when we talk about motivation as to why to record, um, it came to mind when I was uh, listening to Gene Shepard and um, he changed my life basically. Listening to his shows, I listened to thousands of hours of his shows around 2000 and it changed my life. He felt that his, his work was in vain, that he was talking and it was being lost, but how he totally inspired me and totally moved my life into an incredible direction made me realize that uh, being able to record your voice and uh, your perspectives and your uh, opinions and the story of these times is so powerful. And it's such an opportunity because we're in, I believe, a very rare time in history. Uh, we're, we still have one foot in the 20th century, the analog, the old analog world. We haven't yet hit the AI age or the metaverse age, which seems to be starting soon. We're in a very interesting time in history. And to be able to preserve it for those in the future is what really inspires me. So I put everything together in a book, thinking that a book is the object that uh, persists on people's bookshelves. This book, this actual copy I'm holding in my hand right now, could be could could just be sitting there a hundred years from now somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the digital stuff, uh, so many of those early audio shows are completely lost now. There's not a single copy of those early audio, even the early podcasts. They're all most of them are all gone because it's, it was all ones and zeros on web hosting accounts on hard drives that crashed. But um, I've been very uh, intent on preserving this stuff. And so I made a book here called The Answer. But I'm trying to see if I can find the Bob section here. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to find it. It's just a little, a little blurb in there for probably about uh, two or three, two years, I think. Here it is. Uh, yes. Here's the Bob section. Uh-oh. You're, you're on page 635. Here we go. Oh, look at that. Bob. Morning commute. Yeah. And then we have all your, we'll have all your show art here. You did quite a few shows here. 200 and oh, really? 39 plus the, uh, the ambient adventure. And here's right. all your it, show art. Ambient adventure stuff. Yeah. I use the same show art all the time because I'm very lazy with making things like that. Yeah. So. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, but, but that's sort of, 
I think audio to me is, you might talk about people are talking about virtual, virtual reality a lot these days, but to me, audio is the most immersive. You think of video right now, like I'm looking at you on this rectangular screen, right? Um, even in virtual reality, it's uh, this limited view, even though you can look around, but audio is all around you. And audio to me, when you reproduce audio, years later, it sounds ex it's exactly the same audio that was playing originally, right? It's, it's almost beyond the noise floor and the, and the resolution of the audio. It's kind of the same exact thing. So in that way, it's a much more immersive and powerful medium, I think, than almost anything else. You mentioned that. And the interesting thing is, is that also uh, when you're listening to audio as opposed to watching video, um, you don't, you, it's harder to notice. I would say you won't notice, but it's harder to notice uh, the passage of time. So for instance, uh, listening to the audio, you're not going to see the brick cell phone or the fact that there's a pay phone or that the yeah. cars all look uh, different. Um, none of the, those kind of visual cues are there. I mean, there's some audio cues a little bit. Oddly enough, though, a lot of those come forward. So, um, you know, a phone ringing still means something to somebody, even though, to be honest with you, you're never going to hear very many phones ring. Uh, they're all going to be iPhone rings and so forth over time now. But a kid will still understand that's the phone ringing when you hear a bell ringing. Yeah. Uh, even though they probably never experienced a, an actual phone ringing like that. So interesting. That's an interesting concept that you brought up there. So, and you kind of got into this. I'm going to ask you this question anyway, but you kind of just went through a little bit of it is why are you so investing, uh, invested in producing online audio for a, a, an audience? And, and you kind of went through it a little bit there, but I think, but I mean, I think probably, uh, the uh, the core of it is just the the joy of performing. You know, a lot of people are, are in bands; they have their own rock band, and they uh, they all describe it as you know, when I'm on stage performing, it's the greatest moment of my life, and it's just something about people that have uh, a creative tendency to be able to perform. It just feels great. It's the greatest thing in the world. And I've seen now so many people I know who are very talented and very creative having difficult difficulty finding ways to express their creativity people that were in bands right it's very difficult to make any progress with that find places to play and um people that are trying to, to write books and stuff that's very difficult but to, for me to find this medium where i'm able to perform now uh, every week in a show on my own terms but it's like being on a stage it's like putting on a performance and it's the after i've done a show that i know was a good show it's the greatest feeling in the world and i no, beyond that, beyond sort of just the pleasure of it and, and the satisfaction, um, it is this idea that uh, we're able to create something that I think will be meaningful to people in the near and far future. And I think the future is a pretty big place. And we're at a very interesting, as I was saying, we're at a very um, interesting juncture of history here because, right, uh, we, we went through the analog electronic age, you know, starting in the, the 20th century. We reached the digital age, uh, which really was through the 80s into the early 90s, was where we switched over to the digital age. And now we're in the digital age, but before AI. So in theory, AI is going to change everything. Artificial intelligence is going to empower robots and automation in ways that will change our lifestyle. Right now, we're living 
a very much a 20th century lifestyle, right? You're in a house, you have a car in the driveway, you drive to work, you drive to the supermarket, you get stuff. I know sometimes people order stuff, but we're very much living that classic 20th century and even earlier lifestyle um, while still having this very high technology. And as well, we're, we're because of the internet and the preservations of things, we're able to now uh, appreciate and see like how all of these movies and cartoons and TV shows and video games you may have missed from the 20th century, we're now able to sort of re-experience all that, but freshly, things we remember from when we were younger. Um, so that's why I think to tell stories and be in this time period uh, is essential because um, it's going to be of great interest. When you talk about audio recording of this way, being able to record essentially ephemeral audio, audio that you might only want to listen to once, um, this capacity really did only start around that start of podcasting around 2003, 2004. Um, before, if you wanted to record mass amounts of audio, you'd have a closet full of cassette tapes like I have, and I'm still working on digitizing them. Um, to the point that I, th I think it was interesting, uh, at the New York World's Fair in 1964, there was one guy who thought to bring a tape recorder there and record the sounds of the fair. He had to buy a, 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 a portable reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder from Germany into, in order to accomplish this. And he released the audio of the World's Fair, which was incredibly interesting as the only person who thought of it, as even back then having a, a tape recorder was relatively rare. My grandfather actually bought a tape recorder, I think in the 50s, I still have it, the first home tape recorder. And there's some recordings of my father and his sister in the 50s, um, but these are few and far between. Um, and again, any individual person you'd find two or three hours of them talking, perhaps from those time periods. And again, that's relatively recently in, in history. Now, the fact that we're able to uh, produce this work, uh, essentially an unlimited amount of audio, my entire archive, which is uh, 12,000 hours, can fit in uh, you know, 600 gigabytes. Um, when, when those in the far future look back and wanna hear people talking a lot about their lives, this is, this is as far back as they're gonna be able to go. Is, is this time period. We're the oldest and I will be the earliest form of this. And I think that is an incredible opportunity. I almost feel like I'm a, a tour guide bringing people back into the past uh, by doing these shows. So in a sense, it, you could say that this sort of high-minded uh, concept that it's this super important thing, it sort of came after just the love of performance, but I do think it's a legit, legitimate thing and it really is what inspires me to keep going. Interesting. So you, you, you mentioned the performance. So I, I want to go back to that just a little bit. Um, if so, was whenever you were, you know, uh, getting through high school into college and so forth, was performance something that you wanted to do? Is it something that you thought would be in your future or how did that come about? I feel that, uh, as extremely like dorky weirdo back then, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything sort of going up and performing, but I always thought that uh, some kind of creative arts, writing or filmmaking, because I had I was one of those kids with the eight, eight millimeter cameras doing animation and stuff back, back in the day, always wanted to do something uh, creative, but not necessarily what I would consider as sort of a real-time performance. I think that came, that came later. In fact, if you, if you listen to my, uh, early uh, college radio shows, which I've slowly been putting them all online. 
um, I was very, very raw and very rough, and I was not a good broadcaster back then. Interestingly, my my co-host in, in, in college, a guy named Mad Mike, uh, he was a natural from the get-go, and I, he very much inspired me as well. Uh, he just had a natural talent. He was in, he was inspired by the '80s movies characters like Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He, in fact, he wore Hawaiian shirts trying to be like an '80s movie character. Um, so he was sort of picking up that zeitgeist from, um, if you look at those early eighties movies, there's this uh, sense of being this rebel and being this funny guy and being above it all. And he was picking that up. And then I picked that up from him. So there's a lot of these inspirations flying around. Interesting. Well, uh, I want to thank you, Frank, for your time today. And thanks everybody who's listening to, uh, to this. Uh, and Frank, uh, I, I, I just kind of coined this term. I don't even know if it's a term yet. We'll see if it takes off. But uh, you are a prior caster, a person who has done this uh, pre-podcasting, pre-popularity, uh, if you will. You know, there's a, a, an old adage, you know, I was country before country was cool, which is not necessarily in this uh, area of uh, what we're talking about. But it's a, something that people may relate to. And that's where you are, a prior Yeah, and I think it, it's going to be a, it's a fascinating field of study because, again, so much of the material has been lost. And I don't know where you can trace it back to, but it's, um, if you want to go back, I know you started in 99 mm -hmm. um, to 2004 is five years. And yeah. pre, prior to 99, I don't know how much stuff was out there. So this is kind of a narrow window. What a fascinating amount of, uh, um, uh, amount of material is out there. And who knows how much can be sort of uh, rediscovered. I, I often think I have my garage is full of CD and DVD-R backups, and I probably have audio that no one else has that I could potentially bring back with the permission of the creators who can find them. But anyway, this is yeah. a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a rare field of, of study, and I'm so happy that you're, you're taking this on. Well, everybody, listen to Frank on the Overnight Skate, uh, overnightskate.com and yep. onsug.com for some other yep. things That's as well. The, uh, the network, you can hear all the shows. And uh, we'll catch you all next time on the podcast. Right. Thank you very much.